Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. Please note that there was a connection problem during the interview, which sometimes affected audio quality. This is episode 16, A Different Kind of Going Broke. My guest, Professor Neil Buchanan, discusses how our current healthcare system is destroying the economy and how single-payer Medicare for All would fix that. Neil Buchanan is an economist and a professor of law. He is an expert on the federal budget and the budgeting process. Professor Buchanan recently accepted an offer to move from the George Washington University to the University of Florida, where he will hold an eminent scholar chair in tax law. His research focuses on government finances, debt, deficits, and obligations between generations. Professor Neil Buchanan, Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, it's good to be here. So I'd like to start, since you're an expert on the federal budget, if we keep our current health care system, will the government go broke paying for health care? Well, there's two ways to answer that question, and it's important to get the more technical one out of the way first. No, the government cannot go broke not just paying for health care, but at all. The reason I emphasize that in all of my writings and when I talk to people is because this is a pretty common talking point on the right. Former House Speaker Paul Ryan would say things like, you know, there's going to be a big uh, budget crisis any moment now. Of course, that was only when Obama was president that Ryan was warning about that. And the fact is that the federal government cannot go broke because if debt is denominated in U.S. dollars, then the federal government has the ability to create U.S. dollars. Now, that doesn't mean that the government can print as much money as it wants. The other bad consequence, the government were to just start printing money willy-nilly, but that's different from going broke or going bankrupt or something like that. I think it's important for people to understand the import of the word broke or bankrupt when applied to the federal government because it unnecessarily narrows what we can do. Now, the more substantive answer to your question about the healthcare system in particular is okay, the healthcare system will not make the government go bankrupt, but it can destroy the economy, which is a different kind of going broke and in most ways a more fundamentally important one that people would care about. Uh, the reason I say that it can destroy the economy and notice I'm, I'm saying destroy the economy, not just destroy the federal budget, because if the U.S. economy continues with its current health care system on current trends, leaving aside entirely the federal budget aspects of it, you cannot have a healthy economy that has an increasingly large share of it being taken up with a bloated and wasteful health care system. So even if you could somehow figure out a way to continue to have the federal government finance its part of the U.S. healthcare system, what you would still end up with is an economy that's being swallowed up by its healthcare sector, and not even a healthcare sector that's delivering particularly good outcomes. So it's high cost, low benefit, 
And in that regard, you have to move it onto a different path, whether you call it going broke or not. You said it would destroy the economy. How would it destroy the economy? Well, I'm going to use an analogy now that has nothing to do with health care, but I think it's a valid one. A number of years ago, I was talking about the prison industrial complex with people, you know, which was the concept where the prison system was growing and growing. And people would occasionally say, well, that can't be such a bad thing because prisons provide jobs to prison guards and construction workers. And I came up with the vision, sort of a hypothetical vision, where you say, okay, as we measure unemployment, incarcerated people don't count, right? They're not working. They're mostly not working. There are in-prison jobs, which are their own problematic thing. But they don't count for the unemployment statistics. So I said, imagine an economy in which you put half of the people in prison and put the other half of the people to work guarding those prisoners in prison. You have 100% employment, a 0% unemployment rate, and an economy that would um, collapse, right? Because basically you just have uh, nobody doing anything else that would actually support a normal economy like providing food or health care or things like that. To go from that sort of extreme vision that I came up with for effect and take it over to the healthcare sector, right? I mean, healthcare in general is a service that we want any economy to provide. The question is, how much of the economy's resources do you use up in doing that that are diverted from other worthwhile things like educating our children and cleaning up the environment and all the other things that go into a modern, healthy economy? And so, like the idea where you have half the people in prison and the other half the people guarding them, an economy that's being swallowed up by an inefficient and bloated healthcare sector essentially has a whole bunch of people who are pushing paper or worse than pushing paper, essentially working very hard at denying coverage to people who are trapped in that healthcare system. And therefore, the, the patients are the ones who are either being told it's got to come out of pocket or all the other things that I'm sure we'll talk about later in this podcast. But the basic idea is that if you have an economy where you just have a whole bunch of people who could be productive doing unproductive things, then the economy is at least going to become unhealthy and in the extreme could actually collapse. So if current trends continue, do you see the economy collapsing due to health care? There's an old saying by an economist that goes like this, if something cannot continue, then at some point it will stop. And I think that that's the best way to think about the U.S. healthcare system. If it were to continue on its current trends, then there would be a point at which the economy would collapse. But because the path to there becomes increasingly precarious and it becomes increasingly obvious that we're reaching a point of collapse, I think we would stop. Now, I'm hoping that that is soon, very soon, because, as you know, there is a single-payer option that would basically steer us away from all these problems. But if we don't take that off-ramp soon, we will eventually do it later. It's just a question of how much damage we do along the way. So you bring up an interesting point. There's been a lot of argument recently about how much a single-payer system will cost. Right. And some people are arguing that it'll cost more than our current health care system and not save money. But you have studied this. How much money do you think a single-payer system would cost? 
Well, I'm not one of the people who does dollar estimates, so I would be relying on the same things that are just publicly available to everybody else. But I do know that a right-wing think tank has conceded that, that the Medicare for All forecast that the Bernie Sanders campaign has relied on, that the numbers work. Right now, that think tank disagrees with some of the assumptions that the Sanders people make. But that's different from saying, oh, you know, these numbers just don't add up, right? Just having a difference of opinion about various things that would go into any forecast. But I think actually that the smartest way to think about it that I've seen came from a very good op-ed columnist who writes for the Washington Post named Paul Waldman. He's written a couple of things recently, and, and the way he puts it is, somebody says, how are you going to come up with 30-odd trillion or whatever number is being tossed around to pay for your single-payer health care system? Waldman says the right answer is, well, how are you going to come up with the $50 trillion it's going to cost if we don't? Right? And what he's basically saying is, we act as if not acting is the more prudent or cheaper option somehow. We can argue as to whether or not overall costs could go up or go down. The reason they could go up is because we would finally be covering people, right, who aren't currently getting health care. But on the other hand, a lot of those people are getting health care. They're just getting it in the most expensive way possible, which is through emergency rooms which means that what we're doing is we're making them as expensive as we can possibly make them by not giving them preventive care and the things that would make emergency care unnecessary. So that's why I think most of the forecasts and the ones that Waldman relies on make the most sense, that yes, we are actually going to save money. But even if we don't, the amount of extra money that we're talking about isn't in the $33 $33 trillion range, it would be a couple of trillion over the space of years. Now, a trillion dollars seems like a lot of money, but we do have a $20 trillion a year economy. So, you know, the word trillion just shouldn't scare people the way it does. But overall, I think that the right way to think about the cost of a single-payer system or any kind of Medicare for all system, the right way to think about it is always compared to what? And compared to what we currently have, there's just no way that we can't do better. Well, I'd like to read a quote that you said in 2014 about single payer Mm -hmm. because it really emphasizes your point. The larger point, however, is that we cannot afford not to do so. And you just addressed that. How would moving to a single payer system help the economy, help individuals, and help families? So there are a lot of different ways in which a single-payer system would improve things for everyone. One of the most useful ways to think about it, I think, is not to look at it from the standpoint of the people who currently have no health care coverage or virtually no health care coverage. I mean, they deserve coverage, and it's important that they get it. But the reason I think it's interesting to think about the people with coverage rather than those without is because there are so many surprising ways in which their lives would be better with a single-payer system. And the reason for that is, first of all, their employers aren't exactly thrilled with our current health care system either, right? Because the reason employers are pushing increasingly cheap health care plans onto their employees is because the employers' costs are going up. This is not a situation in which the employers just suddenly decided that they were going to offload costs onto their employees. 
in part because they know that it's bad for their employees, it's bad for their relationships with their employees and the employees that they might have a harder time holding on to. It's bad for the employment relationship on both sides. It's bad for the business's bottom line. But from the standpoint of the employees, if you're one of the 70% of the people in the country who has employer-provided health care, and I'm fortunate enough to be one of those people, I still look at the rising costs every year, and I wonder how much higher they're going to go. I see the changes in the health care system that the Republicans have been pushing recently that would allow employers to start providing health care plans that do not have protections for pre-existing conditions or have much bigger co-pays or things like that. So the issue then becomes what happens when those people who we think of as lucky, right? It's really worth emphasizing that point. We think those people are lucky because they have health, health insurance now. But the health insurance might be taken away from them or diluted to the point where they're actually worse off as time goes on. And so even those people are going to be in a better position when they no longer have to worry about that. And by the way, they'll be able to change jobs if they want to, if a better job opportunity comes along without worrying about what continuity of coverage or any of those things that make modern life so scary. And the other thing, if they want to start their own business, they will still have health coverage. Exactly. That's right. So leaving a job to another job is scary enough. Leaving a job to actually be a startup or be an entrepreneur can be scarier still. And people think that costs are high if they're working for a relatively big company and they have to do the employee side of the co-pays and the co-insurance and all the other nickeling and diming things that are no longer just nickels and dimes. But try doing that as a self-employed person. I mean, you know, you're in a completely different risk pool. And the Affordable Care Act did a lot of good things in that direction, but it's still just nowhere near enough and leaves people in far too precarious a position. One thing that I want to ask you about. Some of the proposals that I've seen suggest that we implement the payroll tax on people are, as I call it, a wage tax to pay for health care, and there's some other taxes. Well, I've always wondered, why should source of income matter for taxes? So my question would be, I don't know if you've studied this, but how do you suggest we finance a single-payer system? Should the taxes be on all income, regardless of source, or just the payroll tax? How would you do it? Yeah, it is interesting. This is something I've studied, and it's an ongoing point of contention among tax policy experts. It is strange that we have historically only payroll taxes rather than income taxes for Social Security and Medicare. One of the several good things that came out of the Affordable Care Act was that they at least started to impose the Medicare portion of the payroll tax above the cap. Currently, I think it's 121000 this year, but I could be wrong, where a person who makes $121,000 in wage income pays the same amount of Social Security tax as anyone who makes more than that, because you basically, at that point, we just stop collecting payroll taxes. That used to be true of the Medicare part of it as well. That was finally changed so that if you make $221,000 in earned income, then you would pay more in Medicare taxes, right? But that's still only talking about earned income. We do not use the total income base. So people who make all of their money 
off of stocks and bonds and investments or from real estate investments or from royalties on books or things like that, they get a different tax treatment. And in terms of financing a better healthcare system, you don't even need to believe in progressive taxation. You can believe in proportional taxation, but you have to make sure that you're taking a proportion of the thing that you want to take it from, which should be all of a person's income, not just a fraction of a person's income, especially because labor income is concentrated in a skewed way downward. Yes, I definitely agree with that. And just as a matter of course, I've never understood why if a person makes $50,000, that's what their tax rate should be on. It shouldn't matter if it's mm -hmm. wages or dividends, but that's a whole different issue. Right. And it's even beyond wages and dividends because the least understood part of the way our tax system works is even the income tax doesn't tax all income. And the way it doesn't do that is if you go back to the 2012 election, this is back when presidential candidates still released their tax returns. And so Mitt Romney released his tax return, and he had relatively low taxable income. And what was actually a pretty respectable tax rate for a rich guy, right? I mean, he wasn't like down in the single digits or something like that. I can't remember the exact number, but he, you know, he looked like you would think a rich person should be taxed at. But what that meant is that almost all of his income is not actually being declared in any given year because it's income from him just getting richer and richer from his existing investments. And our system doesn't require him to, or anyone who makes their money that way, to declare the income. It's called unrealized income. That's the technical tax term. But what it ultimately boils down to is I can make $100,000 in a year through work, and that counts as income. He can make $100,000 in a year, well, actually more like in a minute, by simply watching his investments grow. But as long as he doesn't sell the investments and he's just richer, then we pretend like he doesn't even have that $100,000 in income, and therefore we don't tax it. So, you know, if we really wanted to have a fairer tax system, and as part of having a better health care system, but even if you left the health care side out of it, you know, one of my fundamental arguments, and I'm hardly alone in this, I didn't come up with this idea. This is a well-known idea among tax policy experts. But, you know, one of the fundamental reforms that we could really have in our income tax system is to take account of the fact that there are so many extraordinarily wealthy people becoming much, much wealthier in a way that is deliberately invisible to the tax system. That really needs to stop. And would the most common way that people probably would be familiar with of that, would that be stocks? Right. Ownership of stocks or ownership of other kind of real property, right? So you know, let's say that you're a real estate developer who hasn't yet decided to run for president, and you're sitting on, on land or, you know, buildings on land or skyscrapers or golf courses or any of the other things that people in the real estate game own. If you're in a hot market, and your property is going up in value. These are sometimes referred to as paper gains, but they're very real in the sense of that's the reason why investors are in that game. And you start the year and you're worth $800 million, and you end the year and you're worth $900 million. And so you've made $100 million, but the income tax system doesn't see it at all. 
Well, that would be something I would love to talk to you about in more detail, but we'll have to table that discussion. Sure. But that's something I've always been interested in. Now, let's get back to single payer. Is there anything else that you think it's important to mention about single payer and how it would help? I think the most important thing politically is that people need to understand that there is a group of opinion makers who think of themselves as wise and centrist and nonpartisan. And even if they have their partisan leanings, think of themselves as quite reasonable. And thinking in particular of the editorial board of the Washington Post and people in those positions of you know, sort of elite authority, and they constantly fearmonger about single payer and Medicare for all by focusing only on the cost side and not even specifically on the cost side, but on the labeling of the cost. And what I mean by that is if you replace my insurance premiums, my copays, my deductibles, my co-insurance, all of the other things that are imposed on me, and you said, okay, I'm magically going to start calling those things taxes. And instead of going to a private for-profit insurance company, those things go into the government, right, to fund the healthcare system. Somehow, people like the Washington Post editorial board say, oh, my God, that's a multi-trillion dollar tax increase, right? But from your standpoint, you don't have any less money out of pocket than you did before. There's just a different label on it. And so if people really want to understand the debate over single-payer or Medicare for all or, or any variation on that debate, you have to understand that some of the most damaging aspects of the debate are not coming from the hardcore ideologues who are opposed to universal coverage. A lot of it's coming from people who you wouldn't think of as being inherently likely to be dishonest. But year after year, I hear these people repeating this argument over and over again as if the word tax is somehow worse than cost of any other sort from the standpoint of the, of the people who pay it. Well, in a previous episode, I interviewed Gerald Friedman, who's also an economist. I'm pretty sure that you know of him, and I think that you have talked to him on occasion. He's a very smart guy. I really admire his work. One of the things he said is, you have the public taxes, but you have private taxes, and you need to consider, you know, insurance premium, co-payments, deductibles, private taxes, but they're just as much a burden as any other cost. Yeah, I hadn't latched on to the, uh, the label private tax, but I think he's done some good work there because that's exactly the right way to think about it. I mean, when I talk about this in class, you know, what I'll say to people is think about your gross pay and then think about your net pay. In our current system, what you have is gross pay, then you subtract your taxes, and then you think, oh, okay, well, that's my net pay. But out of that, you pay your, what Jerry calls private tax, right? And then in a single-payer system, right, you have your gross pay, you have your taxes, and you don't have any coinsurance or deductibles or anything like that. So the only apples-to-apples comparison is to take account of everything out of pocket that people pay currently that would be taken care of by the things that are now labeled taxes in a universal system. Well, yes, and I think that's a really important point. And I think your previous point that we have to look at, well, 
Is single-payer expensive? Well, not if you consider what we would pay for health care under our current system. It actually saves a lot of money. Exactly. And now, before we end, I would like to know, is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I think that it's very important for people to remember that there is a large group of for-profit companies that are worried about the momentum that's being built towards some kind of single-payer or Medicare for All system, or even just a public option, right? They know that the writing is on the wall for them if people can start actually not using their service. They need their, what an economist calls an oligopoly, and the way oligopolies can be protected is through political power. And so the way this debate is going to play out is going to be heavily influenced by the health insurance companies that have a very profitable thing going, and they don't want to let it go, but we need to take it away from them because it's strangling the rest of us. Oh, I definitely second that. Neil Buchanan, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thanks. It was great to be here. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thank you. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.